Well, today we're back into the book of John. And I'd like you to go ahead, please, and turn to John chapter 13. For those of you that are more perceptive, you may think, didn't we not do John 13 about three months ago? And the truth is yes, but in the book of John, there's a subplot. And so it's all about Jesus, but there is a specific subplot in the book of John that, that is in chapter 13, in chapter 18, and in chapter 21. And it's the subplot about Peter and the way the Saviour deals with Peter. And so we are actually going to be looking at three different chapters today, which is unusual for us. We don't usually do that, but we're going to need to today. And just by way of then background and entering into that subplot, I want us to read together John 13 from verses 31 through to verse 38. And this is what happens. When he had gone out, meaning Judas, after Jesus said to him that he was going to betray him and he ran out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come to Peter and the story that John is so specifically laying out for us here in the Gospel, Lord, it is a story of your grace. And Lord, would you dazzle us afresh with your grace? Would we see through your word how much like Peter we are? And then how kind you are in the way you deal not only with Peter, but with us as well. Lord, you are so good. And so Holy Spirit, would you come and open our eyes, open our affections, open our hearts afresh to the grace of God. And would we see it and be dazzled and comforted and encouraged and provoked afresh? Because you're truly amazing. Amen. When I was a teenager, particularly around 16 years of age, I was a very self-confident and arrogant young man. I was impressed with myself on numerous levels. Because in my mind, I was an impressive young man. And so academically, I did well at school. I always did. I went to a grammar school. It was the Queen Elizabeth Royal Free Grammar School in Britain. It was like it was like Knox, but it was free, which is your best case scenario. <laughs> so, so I went to a school like that and, and grew up at a school like that. And I remember on the very first day of, of school, 11 years old, and they lined us all up in the assembly hall, all the year sevens, um, and they said to us, "Boys, you're the top 10% of our county. You've been chosen to come here." And you boys can do anything you want to do in life. You've just got to work hard because you're the best. And I remember thinking, 
Thank you very much. Yes, I am. I'm pleased, I'm pleased to be here. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased somebody's noticed my potential. And I really did believe it. And it was drilled into us throughout all those years. And it really became a reality in my life that self-confidence and arrogance then fo- therefore followed me. I was good at sports. So I represented the school in hockey and, and soccer and volleyball and, and cricket. There was numerous things that I enjoyed doing. I had lots of friends. I enjoyed playing in a band. So I had this group of posse of friends with me all the time. And and I just thought I was, I was pretty darn good. And, and that related into Christianity as well. I thought I was pretty impressive there too. And so at 16, I was a very arrogant and self-confident Christian. We never missed church for anything. I grew up in a family where church w- was so important, not because it, we had to, but because the family desired it. And my dad would be like a Joshua of, in that sense of, you know, as for me, my, my house, we serve the Lord. And so we were just passionate about church. And so I played drums in church even growing up, which meant that you would have to get up at seven o'clock in the morning to take your drum kit down in your bedroom, to put it in the car, to then take it to this church, to then put it up, and then you would play, and then you would steward. It was only a small church. You would do everything in the church, and then at the end you would take your drum kit down and put it back in the car and then take it home. And that's the way I grew up, and I thought that's what everybody did, and I thought that's the way everybody lived their lives. And then as I realized not everybody lives their life like that, I was quite self-righteous about it, to be fully honest. You think, what's up with these people? Surely serving Jesus, this is what it really means, that you're passionate about church, and unless you're on holiday, you wouldn't dream of not being at church, because this is the bride of Christ, and this is what we need to do. I remember also, I used to attend the local town outreaches, which our family ran. They were very embarrassing times, particularly when you're about 15, 16 years old, because we were Pentecostal, it meant that my dad would crack open a guitar, and we would all stand around in a circle and actually dance and try and praise God, and I'll be looking, I hope not, you know, but, but that was what you thought, there were people were going to come in through the kingdom, through, and so you'd be giving out leaflets and trying to tell people about Jesus, and And I was passionate about trying to reach my friends for the Lord. I used to go along to weekly life groups and I used to tut-tut at people that were too tired. I think, too tired, give me a break. I'm 16, you know, I've got a lot on. um, (laughs) But I I was going to be there because this is important and and this is what people do when they're Christians. And and when I finally got asked to lead the youth ministry, even though I was only 16 myself, I thought it's it's good that I've finally been recognised for my gifts and abilities. And and, and I was just so arrogant in it. So I wrote to every church in the area. (laughs) I wrote to every church in the area telling their youth that they should probably come to our youth group. And I had no idea what a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon was, so I wrote to them as well. I wrote to every church anywhere around the place, and we ran these youth rallies, and they were hilarious. I mean, we were only a small church, but we'd fill a room this size, and I have no idea why people came. But they did, and we'd preach the gospel and share the gospel. I was impressed with myself, and I was self-confident, and I was arrogant. And there's a proverb in Scripture that says, Pride comes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And at 19 years old, I experienced that. I came crashing down. And I came crashing down in a most spectacular and very public way. I went to university, to Cardiff, to study civil engineering. And within the first year, I met a girl and I thought, well, she's really pretty, so I'll marry her. I would never even considered, should I talk to anybody about it? Should I ask my parents or should I ask my pastor? Would it be worth getting any counsel? Of course not. I know what I'm doing. And so I cracked on with that and pursued that. And six weeks before we were due to get married, she called the whole thing off. By that time, I'd left university, which the university was not happy about. I'd bought a car, which I couldn't afford, that she was paying for. I bought a house that I couldn't afford, that she was paying for. 
but now I'm sitting in a house that I can't afford, driving a car that I have no money to support, with a rubbish job, and she's left me. All my parents had bought their wedding gear, all my aunties were excited about it, they're Facebooking everybody in the entire world to say how excited they are about the wedding. Honeymoon's booked, rings are booked, and it's all off. And everybody knew, everybody knew, everybody knew in that moment that I was an idiot, that I was a proud guy, cracking on with my life, with not a care for the world of what anybody else thought, so self-confident in his own opinions that he wouldn't even consider asking anybody else about anything. And I remember one night after that all happened and everything came to an end, just sitting in my bedroom and with my back against a radiator, so in Britain you have these big metal radiators on the wall, and I remember just sitting with my back against the radiator in a crumpled mess on the floor and just crying my eyes out. Because I think for the first time at 19, I was actually aware of who I really was. I was aware that I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. I wasn't as wise as I thought I was. I was aware probably for the first time in my life that I have been and was behaving as biblically defined like a fool. And I was broken. I was genuinely broken before the Lord as I wept. I felt like a failure. And everybody knew it. I couldn't hide behind it. And by and large, I think I felt like a fraud too. I felt like on the one hand I'm trying to proclaim this it's all about Jesus attitude. But in reality, behind the scenes, it's not all about Jesus at all. I'm doing my thing and I'm doing what I want to do. John Bunyan calls it Mr. Facing Both Ways. And that was me. When I'm at church, I'm there. When I'm leaving church, I'm world. And it would depend who I was with, depending on what was taking place. I felt like a fraud. I felt like a failure. And I was indeed broken. And the truth is, I'm sure there's many of you in this room, if not all of you, that can relate to that feeling in various different ways. Maybe you, like me, have had a situation in your life where you've fallen in a very public way. Everybody knows. You've done something where everybody knew the errors of your ways and knew what had taken place. Maybe for some of you, you've fallen or failed in a more private way. But you know it. And you know what you've done. And you know the event that has taken place. And even as I'm saying this, there are things coming to your mind that no one else really knows. But as you lie on your pillow at night on different occasions, you know it. And you have a grief and a guilt in your heart as you consider what took place. Maybe for some of you it's not an event at all. There's no grand event that has actually happened in your life per se. But as you consider your life, there is an ongoing low-grade feeling of failure throughout your life. Things that you wanted to do for Jesus that you never did. Things that you didn't want to do because you love Jesus that you have done. And so at different times, as you lay in your bed at night, you know, I just feel failing. I feel like a fraud. How can I even go to church and pretend? Because if people really knew what I was like, they surely would reject me. That feeling of failure and fraud. Well, the good news for us, I think, is in this text, we get to learn one thing. And it's a great thing. Through this story in the life of Peter, here's what we get to learn we had to learn that there is grace for us, even in our failures. That's what this story is all about. 
that there is grace for us. There is a God who loves us passionately and has washed our sins as white as snow and has come to restore us and forgive us. So that even when our failures take place, we can know that Jesus paid it all. And we can know and see how he interacts with us as we know and see how he interacts with Peter. You see, so many Christians can readily identify with Peter, can't they? And it's deliberately like that in Scripture. You ask a lot of Christians, okay, which disciple would you have been? And they say, oh, Peter, I think I would have been Peter. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. We we all tend to go towards Peter. And that's deliberate. I think God has deliberately ordained Peter to be so involved because he is a man that when you hear about him, you can so readily identify with. But the story doesn't stop there. In the Gospel of John, we don't just see Peter in a way that we can laugh at him and giggle at him, but we actually see then the way he falls and God interacts with him. So God has deliberately ordained it to be a deliberate recognition from ourselves towards Peter, but also he's ordained it to be so that as we see the way the Saviour is with Peter in his grace, we may recognise that in all reality... That's the way he is with us too. That's the way he deals with us. That's the way he deals with us in our failures. For there is a grace for us, even in our failures. So let me introduce Peter to you before we get into this scripture. Let me just bring everybody up to speed with who Peter is in case we're not all aware. Peter is the primary disciple. Whenever you see him in the Gospels, his name is always first on the list. Judas Iscariot is always last on the list. Peter is the primary disciple. He's the rock around the church is going to be built after the resurrection of Jesus. He is the alpha male of the pack. And so whenever you encounter Peter in scripture, he's a man of strength. He's a man of opinions. He's a man of assertiveness. He is a leader's leader in every way. One commentator calls him the big fisherman. And you think, yep, that's what he's like. He is a man's man. He's not this girly boy. He is this big, burly man who is opinionated, who is assertive, who is quite domineering in the way he operates. He is a man's man and he is a leader. And yet there's also this boyish passion and clumsiness about Peter, which makes him so endearing and so loving. I mean, in real life, I've, I've worked with a man like this because Pete Creasley, my dear friend, can be like this. He is, he is one of the best leaders I've ever met. There is a strength in him and a clarity in him, and without doubt a grace in him, but a clarity and a leadership gifting which, which I admired. And certainly when I was 18 years old and then went through all I went through at 19, he was right there with me, counselling me and helping me and actually never moved away from me. He just then took me on from, from that point. But what people don't understand about Pete as much is he's also really clumsy and he does things that defy belief. And, and it's, it, it's really funny. So when you know him, so he's the senior pastor at Christchurch where I'm from, when you know him, it does become quite hilarious. So I remember one time going in the office and he just had his hand in his pocket and we're talking and then all of a sudden he went, oh! And I'm like, what's happened? Stung, suddenly stung you? He's like, oh, I've super glued my hand to my pocket. <laughs> and they're like, oh mate, that's, that's quite a problem. So, so we have to try and get his hand out of his pocket and we get his hand out and he's like, oh no, my pocket is glued to my leg. So we're trying to pull... <laughs> pull his pocket from his leg and eventually he gets his hand out and he's covered in super glue and then you ask the obvious question, what, 
why did you have superglue in your pocket? At which point the story got worse because he had superglue in his pocket because his two front teeth that are actually like porcelain on the front kept falling out so he just wanted to glue them back on. So he's, so he's, so he's gluing on his teeth and you just think, this is madness. And, and I've just got story after story of Pete doing these things. So in the one sense, he's leading Christchurch out the front and then out the back, you're helping him de his pocket and you just think, you know, this is the man that I know and there's something lovable and endearing about that type of man and, and Peter's like that. He is a strong leader. He is assertive. He is clear in where he's going, but he is passionate and clumsy. I mean, think about the things he does. They are hilarious. They really are just absolutely gold. So Matthew 17, the transfiguration. Jesus is glowing white. His clothes are glowing white. Elijah has rocked up. Moses has rocked up. This is a moment where you hit your knees and worship the Lord, but not Peter. Peter says, oh, good job I'm here. We should build you some tents. You could stay. And you think... Where on earth does that come from, Peter? And God the Father actually interrupts Peter in the cloud and says, yeah, thanks for playing. Um, this is my son who I'm well pleased. This is the point of this exercise, Peter. No, no tents then? No, no tents. I mean, th- that's the way Peter operates. Peter's the guy that is first out the boat when Jesus is walking over the water and he thinks, oh, I think I'll have a go. And Do, do you have faith to do that? Oh, I have faith to do that. So he steps out and he's like, this is pretty good. And then panic and, ah, save me! He's just that type of guy. He's all in and then just keeps blowing it. You've got John 13. I love John 13. Jesus, in one of the best parts of scripture, washing the disciples' feet. This is, this is holy ground. This is an epic moment. The maker of heaven and earth with a towel wrapped around his waist on his knees, washing the disciples' feet, teaching them the way they should go. He goes around them one by one. He gets to Peter. And Peter says, look, thanks very much, but not for me. You know, I don't deserve this. So Jesus says to him, well, listen, to be honest, I'm going to need to do this because this is, this is part of what I'm revealing to you, but it's also revealing what I'm going to be doing for you on the cross to wash me, to wash you. At which point Peter says, oh, Oh, well, wash my whole face as well. Wash my head. Throw it everywhere. I mean, you know, that's a little bit extreme, um, but thanks for playing. This is, this is what he does. John 18 as well. Jesus has told Peter that he can't come with him. And so he, as Jesus comes out the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see the, the band of over a thousand soldiers running towards him, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And we get the old ego of me and all that. Um, well, well, what takes place is Peter just gets a bit hot-headed. And so he pulls his sword out. I mean, no one's asked him to. Jesus is completely in control. He's like, oh, oh, okay, have it, boom. And he, clearly this guy's got a helmet on. He scrapes off the helmet and cuts his poor ear off. And you're like, what on earth are you doing? And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, thanks for playing. Let's just stick the ear back on. Peter, just stand over there. That's what Peter's like. There is a passion in Peter, a love for Jesus in Peter, a strength in Peter, and yet there is also a clumsiness and a boyishness in Peter. He is a lovable and endearing character. And yet the reality is there is also a massive character defect in Peter. He's presumptuous. He's proud. He's self-sufficient. He's arrogant. Peter comes from the ICANN school of theology. That's what he's like. You know, so... Jesus tells him, look, you're not going to be able to come with me. I can, I will. 
Um, I'll show you. And Okay, well, th- thanks, Peter, but you really can't come. I will. So when he's there, the guy in the guest ceremony is, all right, I'm going I'm to have him now, sword him. You're like, Peter, what are you doing? It's just this I can mentality of pride, of self-sufficiency, of indeed presumption. And it is that side of Peter that really sets up this whole scene here in John 13 and then John 18 that can only really be described as a spectacular fall of grace. He completely falls. He goes from this arrogant man to being in some ways a decrepit man. So turn with me please to John chapter 18. In John 13, we see Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. That's what we read at the start. We see Jesus spending time with Peter, explaining to him where I am going, you cannot follow me. And from there on in, we have Peter really fighting that and trying to do all he can to show Jesus that, yes, I can. I will follow you. I'll be there for you. And if even these Muppets fall away, that's fine. I won't. I'm coming with you. And so he instructs him at the end of 13, Peter, you cannot follow me. And then this scene, some hours later, unfolds. Notice the first words, Simon, Peter, follow Jesus. Verse 15. He's just been instructed, you can't follow me. Third word, Simon, Peter, followed. Here's what happens next, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Then verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? That's the second time. He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a cock crowed. You get this incredible scene where to start off we think, is this the same man? Is this the same guy that has been so assertive with Jesus that I will never leave you? I will follow you. I will be by your side and if either, even if other people fall away, I will never fall away. I will be standing by your side, Saviour. Jesus explains to him that you won't be. That's not going to be possible with you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And yet Peter, in absolute presumption, fights that instruction with a passionate, I'll show you attitude. And then this scene unfolds. And as Peter stands then, warming himself by a charcoal fire, something that's going to be important for us to understand later on. As he stands warming himself, a young servant girl, a kid, comes up to him, are you not one of his disciples? I am not. Is this the same Peter? 
And then the officers around them and the other servants say to Peter, hey, yeah, hang on, I think I do recognise you. You're one of the followers of Jesus, right? And, nope, not me, I, I'm not. And then one of the relatives of the dude where Peter's cut his ear off says to him, hang on, I do recognise you. You are the guy that cut my relative's ear off. I am not. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Peter began to curse and swear as these questions came. So he wasn't just defending them, he's calling down curses on himself. This same Peter that assured Jesus this is what he'd never do. So in effect, as the servant girl asks and the officers are asking, he's, he's in effect saying, absolutely not, I am not lying to you. I call down a curse on myself if I'm lying to you. And he does that time and time again. And in the Gospel of Luke then, it says that as Peter did deny Jesus for the third time, the rooster crowed and at that point the Saviour turned and looked straight at him. I'll tell you what, I've been thinking about that moment this week. What must that look have been like? You've just spent three years with Jesus. You've walked with Jesus, you love Jesus. Jesus has told you that you will not be able to follow me. You will deny me. And you have vehemently denied it. You have felt full of self-confidence to say, I will never do that. You're wrong, I'll show you. And then as you do it, and as it unfolds, the third time and that rooster crows, the Saviour looks. What a look that must have been. Not actually a look of anger. Not a look of disdain. Actually, I would argue a look of compassion. And that's what broke Peter so much. See, in the other Gospels, it says that at this point, Jesus, um, as Jesus looked at Peter, Peter broke down and wept bitterly. And you can understand why, eh? See, in so many ways, I think what happened to Peter in that moment is what I walked through at 19, or be to a lesser degree. He became very aware of who he really is. He became very aware that all my life I've been presumptuous and arrogant and self-confident. I've lived with an I-can attitude and yet when it really matters, I can't. Peter is broken. Peter is aware in that moment that he is an utter failure. Everything he said that he wouldn't do, he's just gone and done. Can you imagine how fraudulent he must have felt in that moment? Everything that I said, I would stand by him to the end. And I've just let him down. And he looked at me. He was broken in that moment. Broken with a feeling of failure broken with a feeling of fraudulence. And in this regard, I think, albeit to differing degrees, I think we can all relate, can't we, to those feelings. It's the feeling of the businessman, the sorrow of the businessman that was never there for his kids as they grew up. And now as they've grown up, they really don't have a great relationship with him at all. And he looks back on his life and realises 
I blew it in those years. And I wish I could have that time over again. And he lives then with this nagging sorrow in his heart, aware of, if only I could have my time again. Because I failed. It's the brokenness and the grief of the young woman who has been praying for opportunities to share the gospel with her family. She's even been sharing it in a fellowship group with the other ladies so they could be praying for her. And now the opportunity in her family has just arisen through divine appointment for her to share the gospel. And yet in that moment, instead of stepping forward, she steps back. The opportunity goes by. And as she leaves that scene that day, she's very aware. I just blew it. I just failed again. It's the grief and sorrow and anguish of a husband who just some months ago said that he wanted to be a man of the word. He wants to be a man that is leading his family with clarity. He wants to be a man that is going to stand on his own two feet and says, as for me and my house, my family are going to serve the Lord and I'm going to lead my wife by washing her with the word and I'm going to lead my children through the word of God. And yet reality is, some months on, he realises, well, time's gone on. And I had grand desires to do it and I made promises before the Lord and I've asked my fellowship group to hold me accountable. But in reality, it's not happening. And he lies on his bed at night and it feels such a fraud, a failure. If only people knew how little I spend time with the Lord. They probably wouldn't want anything to do with me. It's the anguish and grief of the mother who has been trying to work hard on not getting angry with her speech towards her children. She's passionate about trying to grow in this area of her life and yet she's just had a horrendous week as she's got angry with her kids time and time and time again. And as her husband comes home, he finds her weeping and she's weeping because she's broken that she just can't do it. She wants to be such a better mum for her kids. She knows the calling on her life in motherhood. But she just finds it so hard. And she feels then like she's a failure. She's just like the Apostle Paul. We know what it is to not do what we're called to do. And yes, do what we're not called to do, don't we? We know that battle within us. When Paul says in Romans 7, why, why is it that I keep doing the things that I know I don't want to do? And why do I not do the things that, that, I, don't want to, that I do want to do? How, how does this work? Oh, and he's basically crying out to God, how long do I have to be in this body of death for? Because he's aware there's a war in my heart and I just keep failing. And this is Peter's moment of failure. This is his moment where he is broken before the Lord. Broken as he feels like a failure and a fraud before the Saviour. My friends, aren't you glad that God didn't leave us there? Aren't you grateful that God didn't leave Peter there? That whole scene that I've described for you there was indeed Peter's fall. But now let us look at the second part, the second of only two parts to this message. Let's look at Peter's rise, because God doesn't leave him there. The Saviour never leaves him there. See, the reality is, it's just a few hours on from this look. Just a few hours on from this look of the Saviour in that moment to Peter. Just a few hours on from that, 
Jesus would be standing before Caiaphas and Pilate and then having been whipped and scourged and beaten with a crown of thorns placed on his head with the whole battalion mocking him. He would be crucified and dying in the place of Peter for Peter's shame and Peter's sin. That is amazing grace. As Jesus looked at Peter that night, he not only looked at him with compassion, I think he looked at him with resolve because it was a fresh reminder, a fresh reminder to the Saviour of why the cross was so important. Peter had blown it. He'd shown himself to be an arrogant liar. When the rubber hit the road, he couldn't handle it. And as Jesus encounters him that night then, and he looks at him, he then looks from him and starts heading his way to the cross. That is amazing grace. And when we consider the grace of God in our lives, the primary place where we see amazing grace is the cross. It's the place where holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. It was the place where Jesus says, I know you. I know your failings. I know you. I know that you will spend a lifetime doing the things that you don't want to do and not doing the things that you know you're called to. I know you. And that's why I'm going to die for you. Because the consequences of your sin are death. The consequences of your sin is that you are cut off from God and you cannot return to the one who made you. So I'm going to come after you in your failures. And I'm going to die for you in your failures so that you may have life and have it in abundance. That is amazing grace, isn't it? That is incredible grace. And that is the grace that Peter, no doubt, received and saw in his life. And John wants us to see that grace, which is why in chapter 19, he starts to walk us through the cross. But specifically relating to Peter, there's another scene of amazing grace. Another scene that helps us see Peter's rise, that helps us to understand in our own lives how the Saviour reacts to our failures too. And it's not the scene of Calvary. It's the scene of the Sea of Tiberias. And it happens in John chapter 21. So let's turn there. This is the third text we're going to look at. This is, I think, one of the most compelling scenes of grace in the entire Bible. It's one of the most compelling scenes, I think, in particular of restoring grace. Because Jesus, having died in the place of Peter and risen again in the place of Peter, encounters Peter. And this is what he does. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know what it, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. 
So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! And Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off it. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. My friends, this is an incredible and wonderful scene of restoring grace. And it is a scene that is packed with symbolism that I think can easily be missed but should not be missed. The opening scene. Does it sound familiar to you? These dudes are fishing. They've been out all night. They've not caught a thing. And then this guy rocks up at the shore, says, hey, have you caught anything? They respond with a no. And so he tells them, put the nets out the other side, which they do. And then they catch loads. That is exactly what took place in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus called those disciples in the first place. That's exactly what happened. And then they came to the shore and started to give their lives away to following him. He is taking Peter in particular back to that opening scene in his life. As Peter swims in and comes to the shore, Jesus is there and he knows straight away that this is Jesus. And yet he knows exactly the last time he was around a charcoal fire what took place. And Jesus prepared a charcoal fire for him. And Jesus is standing right by the charcoal fire, cooking. And then Jesus, really reminding Peter of that night when he denied him three times, asks him, not one, not two, 
But three questions. Peter, do you love me more than these? And then question two, Peter, do you love me? And question three, Peter, do you love me? Where it says there that on the third time Peter was grieved, he's not grieved in the sense of, oh, why are you doing this? He's grieved in the sense of he's broken again because he knows exactly what the Saviour's doing. This is the scene where I denied you and in effect you're giving me a second chance. And Lord, I do love you. I, I want to worship you. This is a different Peter to the one that was a few chapters earlier because this is a Peter who is broken. He's no longer responding with, yes, I will. I will do this. Of course I love you. I love you way better than these guys. No, it's the Lord. You know everything about me. And yeah, I do love you. I I want you. Isn't it wonderful? He's taking him back and giving him a second chance. And then we have this wonderful crescendo in verse 19 of restoring grace where Jesus simply says the final two words follow me. My friends, that screams of forgiveness, does it not? Having seen it all and having now Jesus having died in the place of Peter and risen again. What he is basically communicating to the Peter in that moment is, Peter, you are forgiven. It is finished. You denied me three times as I foretold you that you would. You rejected me three times as I told you you would. But Peter, now, through the gift of repentance, which you have clearly endured, follow me again. You're forgiven. I paid for that sin in full, son. It's finished. It screams of forgiveness, and I think it sings of restoration, does it not? Follow me. Not just, okay, well, look, you blew it, so if you wouldn't mind sitting out a bit, sort of tag along at the back. No. Peter, follow me because I still want to build a church around you and you're ready now. What restoring grace. What amazing grace towards this man. It's reminiscent, I think, of Jonah. Jonah, a young man who gets called by the Lord to go and proclaim the gospel in Nineveh and the opening scene, he is running away from Nineveh because he doesn't like them. And so he gets swallowed by a fish, gets spewed up by a fish And then it says at the start of chapter 3, and the word of God came to Jonah a second time. Takes him all the way back to the start, says, let's try that again. You see it also in in Rahab and her whole story, the prostitute of Jericho. She has been with almost everybody in the city. That's the impression you get as you read it. Everybody knows her. And yet she's the woman who's saved, having put the scarlet cord around the window in Jericho. And as the walls come tumbling down, as the the Israelites march around it, the walls come tumbling down, all apart from one window area, the area with the scarlet cord wrapped around it, the scarlet cord which is pointing to the Passover, which the Jews have already done, which ultimately points to the cross. That room saved. And you would think, the prostitute of Jericho, is she just going to maybe like, you know, thanks for saving me, off you go? Nope. You look in your genealogy of Jesus and you will discover the name Rahab. She was the prostitute of Jericho and God then pulled her into the very genealogy of the saviour of the world. That is restoring grace. That is amazing grace. And this is Peter's turn. 
Peter, you denied me three times. Peter, to be honest, I love you, but you've always been presumptuous. You've always been arrogant. You've always been louder than the rest. You've always been opinionated. But you are now broken, and I died for your sin. And Peter, there is a grace for you then, even in your failures. So come follow me again. Come after me again. Because there is grace for you. You know, my friends, just to close, here's the reality. Just like there was grace for Peter, even in his failures, I want you to know there is also a grace for you. That's why John is writing this. That's why he's showing us the story because the God of the universe wants to communicate to John this message that there's grace for you even in your failures. And in the same way I dealt with Peter, so I deal with you. My friends, if you're not here today, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, Jesus has paid it all for you. He died on a cross. God made you. He made you to be with him, to find your delight in him and your joy in him and your strength in him. He made you for that type of relationship and yet you, just like me and everybody else that's ever lived, rejected that. And that's what sin is all about. It's saying, look, thanks God, but I'll give it a miss. I'm going to to exchange you, creator, for creation and I'm just going to live here as if this is all that matters. That's what sin by nature is, rebelling against God. And because of that, there is a distance between us, between us and God, sinful humanity and a holy creator. And you can't get back by yourself. It takes perfection to get back. We can't do that. And yet 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, and then died on a cross. And as he declared, it is finished. The point was, there is now a way back for you. In my holiness and my perfection, there is now a bridge between your sinfulness and the Holy Creator. So his message throughout is, put your faith in me as your Lord and Saviour, and you will have life. Put your faith in me, and I will be the stairway to heaven for you. Repent of your sin, and put your faith in me, and I will have died for you. That's why Christianity has very little to do with what we do for Jesus. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. That's the glories of Calvary. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I appeal to you, take him as your Lord and Saviour and know this life that he came to bring you. But if you are a Christian, which is most of us here, then maybe you're here today and like me, at some point you have fallen in a very public way. Maybe people in this church don't know about it, but you do. And maybe you've fallen in a private way, just areas of your life that you think, oh, I couldn't possibly tell them that. Because if I told them that, where would I be? They would, I don't know where people, what people would think of me if I was just honest and telling them what's really happened in my life, things that I've done, things that have taken place that I'm ashamed of. Maybe it's not an event in your life, but it really is just low-grade feeling of failure all the time. Promises that you've made to the Lord that have then been broken within weeks. Clarities and convictions where you've said, I will do this for Jesus this year, I'm in. 
And then three weeks later, we've forgotten and we've moved on. And we feel like a failure. And we feel like a fraud. My friends, I want to encourage you, if that's your story, today, let it go. Because Jesus has paid it all for you. Even in your failures, there is a grace. Because Jesus, knowing your life, knowing everything that you would do in your life, all your errors, all your failures, then said, I will take all that and I will die in your place on the cross for all of that. My friends, Jesus has paid it all and there is a grace for you then, even in your failures. So rest in that grace and delight in that grace and believe that grace because the cross is sufficient and Jesus really did pay it all. Let's pray. Lord, to consider your grace is to be overwhelmed. Lord, to consider that you would lavish your grace upon us so that even when we fail, we experience a grace. Lord, it is staggering. Oh Lord, in the same way that we recognise ourselves in Peter, the same way that we see ourselves in him and both maybe his strengths and his weaknesses. Lord, would we see ourselves also in the scene of John chapter 21? Would we also see our face where you are addressing Peter, addressing us and calling us afresh then to follow you? Because we're forgiven and we're restored. Lord, would we rest in that and delight in that every day of our lives? Because you really have paid it all.